to the Clinical Podcast Series brought to you by the American Academy of Optometry Foundation. Today's episode is entitled Keratoconus, an updated review. It's my pleasure to welcome our host, Dr. Mila Bruchik, and our topical expert, Dr. Dan Fuller, as well as our topical editor, Dr. Kat Hogan. It's now my pleasure to start the broadcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Mila Brugic, and I want to thank you for the partnership with the American Academy of Optometry Foundation for really partnering up on this podcast series. And today we're going to be talking to Dr. Dan Fuller about keratoconus. So Dan, um, if you could first give us a little bit of a background on yourself, just so the audience knows a little bit more about you. Well, thank you and thank the Academy for uh, allowing me this opportunity to participate. Uh, I'm a diplomate in the cornea contact lens refractive technology section of the academy. I'm also the chief of the cornea contact lens service at Southern College of Optometry in the Eye Center. And um, I'm also the president, current president of the Scleral Lens Education Society. Dan, I know you stay very, very busy. And uh, the thing that I really respect and appreciate about you is um, not only the level of research that you're producing, um, it seems like every meeting I'm at, you're either author one, two, or three on posters, but in that same vein, you're also in the trenches caring for these patients on a daily basis. And I don't think there's a better person to really kind of go over this article, which is Keratoconus, an updated review. And that's what we're really going to be going over. So Dan, I guess to get things started, you know, there's so much new in Keratoconus and and this article really did a deep dive into a lot of those things, but what do you see as um, some of those more important clinically ap applicable aspects about keratoconic care and really how it's gonna influence the way we care for patients? Um, I think that's a great question and, and it's a, really a fabulous uh, uh, update from the authors writing this uh, initial article back in 2010 on the same subject. And, uh, if you can look back over the last 10 years in, in 12 years and this discipline in particular, um, the amount of information that we've received has evolved dramatically in that period of time, both for the diagnostic side and also for the management side of keratoconus. And I think, you know, the key findings that, that we're seeing are that uh, it's certainly, we have an abundance of information out that it's a lot more prevalent and the incidence is a lot higher than we thought it was. Uh, and this, this really speaks to the fact that our ability to detect uh, keratoconus has become a lot more sophisticated and tools that we had previously considered to be really in the research domain are, are filtering down into the clinical domains and are accessible to most practitioners out there now. I I I first I, I already see that in our practice, Dan, and it, it was I literally just had a patient who came in. Um, she uh, completely unrelated issue, but we did a topography on her, and she's a 63 year old female, and she's got keratoconus. It's not anything substantial or significant, but there is definite inferior corneal steepening. So so we we see that already. What what topic in this paper do you think is important to? clinicians that are in the trenches caring for patients. Um, is there a technology or diagnostic technology where you're like, if you really want to get into keratoconus management, you, you have to have this, or even in terms of um, caring for these patients from a specialty lens uh, practice, is there something or some form of technology that they really have to have to, to manage these patients? Absolutely. Uh, I think one of the biggest changes that we've seen is that uh, topography used to be kind of the gold standard in, in what we looked at. 
But what we've realized through the research uh, findings that have come out over the last uh, 10 and 20 years is that really what's going on in the anterior surface of the cornea and the epithelium and that anterior limiting uh, lamina uh, it can occur without really creating enough of a disturbance in the curvatures that you can miss the early cases. And why is that important? Well, it's, it's vitally important now because we have so many treatment options, for example, uh, corneal cross-linking, where it's important to catch these patients early so that you preserve as many of the management options as possible from the contact lens side as possible, which is near and dear to my heart. Uh, I love fitting scleral lenses and obviously I'm passionate about it, but it's far easier to fit somebody in a soft lens or even in a corneal GP lens than it is to go there. So I think that one of the biggest changes is to move away from just topography to where we're looking at tomography and, and OCT of the anterior segment where we can actually get some height and elevation data on the posterior corneal surface where we're more likely to detect some changes. And certainly one of the more exciting areas are uh, changes that, that may go to epithelial mapping. And it's a little bit less uh, precise than what we know about the uh, uh, posterior corneal surface, but you can see that epithelial thinning at the apex and, and kind of the thickening at the base of the comb. And those are giveaways that you've got early cases. And if you're particularly interested in working with refractive surgeons and doing uh, LASIK and, and other uh, uh, procedures, then you wanna detect these, these form thrust cases early. And you simply can't do that with uh, corneal topography by definition. You've got to have uh, things like uh, the rotating shine fluke technologies and, and Pentacam and other devices that allow you to get a, a more precise look at the different layers of the cornea. And if you could, you know, share share a tidbit that you think that for the listen for the listeners of the podcast, um, what they might find interesting to share with their their patients about some of the research that was presented here in this overview paper. Like, what what would be something that would totally be relevant to a patient from a patient's perspective? Yeah, I think uh, probably kind of to harp on those same two messages. One is that you know, the genetics are not entirely clear. You see both uh, traditional autosomal uh, dominant recessive transmission, and you also see non-Mendelian transmissions, which suggests that you've got a polygenic disease uh, or a disease controlled by two or more genes on, on different uh, chromosomes. And you also have um, a multifactorial influence that, that suggests that uh, you know, you have to have these changes that create an expression of those underlying genes. And it's uh, fairly complex trying to map these things out. But what that means to the patient is, is that once identified, we really need to be checking the primary family members as well. And we need to periodically keep surveillance of these patients. We can't just send them away uh, for a year or even six months uh, in some cases, particularly if they're the younger patients with the uh, earlier onsets, they have a more um, aggressive progression in many cases. And the ability to keep surveillance on these allows us to intervene with things like corneal crosslink linking at a time where it makes the greatest impact and difference in the patient's lives. So I think those are the twofold messages are, are of early detection of not just the patient, but also of the primary relatives and also getting the management started at an earlier, earlier stage than we previously were able to. 
I think it's unbelievable too that we now can actually acquire genetic information from a cheek swab on these individuals and determine what their level of genetic risk, realizing that keratoconus is uh, seemingly a polygenic condition that's influenced by not only genetic factors, but environmental factors. I, I just think that, that adds to the conversation. So, so Dan, one, one other question before we close out here. Um, is there anything where you feel like th this isn't something that's available yet, but this is something that's on the horizon that I think is going to just take keratoconus management to the next level? Is there anything out there that you're seeing that's like, yeah, this is, this is really kind of cool? Well, I think there's, you know, we, we talk about some of the fundamental problems uh, histopathologically with the cornea that occur where you have uh, more reactive oxygen species and, and oxidative process and uh, an upregulation and some of the inflammatory processes through an inhibition of, of the uh, genes that normally control that. And, and what that means is that, you know, you get this uh, softening or thinning of the biomechanical properties of the cornea. And I think uh, some of the exciting research to me is uh, that we're moving beyond just being able to evaluate uh, those biomechanical properties in the central part of the cornea, but we're actually able to look out now with some of the research tools that are out there and look at some of the biomechanical processes that are going across the entire corneal surface why is that important? Well, if you think about it, the apex of the cone patients is frequently decentered. And if all you're measuring are the central characteristics biomechanically, you're going to miss a lot of these early cones. So for me, I think to be able to expand that to where we're talking about the whole gestalt of, of the corneal surface is just amazing. That is that is absolutely awesome, Dan, and it's it's spot on. Um this has been great, Dan. I could talk to you for another hour on this topic. I, d I do want to thank you for being on the, this episode. And I want to thank the American Academy of Optometry Foundation for their partnership on this podcast series. Dan, thank you for being on here. My pleasure. And a special thanks to CooperVision for their educational grant to make it all happen.